three, two, one. Hello. Great. So here we are. We did it. Episode three. Episode two. First one was sort of our uh, our intro episode. Episode two. I can't I can't help but feel like when I gather, I have to count it as a whole time. So I'm I'm my biological clock says episode three. Well, part of it, what I also acknowledge is the amount of work that goes into editing this sucker and recognizing that. That work volume probably makes it feel like a full episode. <laughs> For the sake of accuracy and and confusion, hello and welcome to episode two. Um, cool, great, yeah. So today's episode is about our True Selves project, um, which is a documentary theater project um, collecting stories uh, about the transgender and gender diverse communities in the state of New Jersey. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about one of the big themes that came out of the project, which is um, the transgender experience in the healthcare system. So let's go into it. Chapter one, the origin story. So the origin story is about like how we got into the thread of work. So let me take you back in time, Dan. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember the spring of 2016? John, I don't remember the January of 2020. Please <laughs> take us on the journey. Fortunately, at that time we had. Um, gotten a new board member, and that was David Rogoff. And David Rogoff is this amazing human being who is a, a therapist, and he is also one of the founding board members of the Pride Center of New Jersey. And one of the things that David did was he introduced us to Nicole Brownstein. Um, we met at a, a little restaurant in Highland Park over lunch, and it was one of those lunch meetings that was supposed to be like a quick 45 minutes and lasted like three hours, um, because it was just... It was a conversation around what is it that um, the transgender community needs and what are the conversations that are happening right now. And then it was also a conversation around um, what it, what's the power of what uh, artists can bring into spaces to help people feel more comfortable and to help um, to help communities that that tended to not be very public about their stories? How could we provide an outlet um, for good quality storytelling and really good quality information to get shared? And the, the thing that Nicole did, which was like the simplest and yet the most generous thing she could do was she just invited us in. So after that lunch and uh, at the very next meeting, we began attending um, True Self support group meetings. 
simply introduced ourselves for who we were and what we were doing there. The big thing that really, in our listening, that really came out was this idea of the healthcare system in the lives of those who do not identify um, as the, the gender assigned to them at birth. And what does the transgender community's interaction look like with the healthcare system? Um, now, Nicole kind of puts it best. She explains, you know, what are the healthcare and wellness needs of the transgender community? When an individual begins accepting themselves as being transgender, they learn that they must transition in three ways. They must transition medically, legally, and socially. Medical transitioning can consist of taking medications and possibly surgeries. Legal transition can consist of changing your name, your gender marker, and other necessary legal documents. Where a support group is most valuable is in helping the individual understand these changes, providing emotional support, helping them to see that there are others just like them, and in adjusting to their new identity socially. So Nicole kind of like outlines there what are the what are the the kind of like baseline or immediate needs or concerns of someone who identifies as transgender and one of the things i just kind of want to add to her point because it's one of the things that she herself is so articulate about in support group meetings um, is that uh, we should know that medical can mean a pretty wide range of possible therapies. It can include hormones, it can include surgeries, but not always. Um, and one of the th really important things, Dan, and when we talk about transgender as an overarching term, is there's no such thing as one kind of transgender story. There's more and more being discovered uh, about what gender dysphoria means, but it's that overarching term that means a conflict between someone's assigned gender and the gender that they identify internally. Cool. All right, now we're ready. Let's move on to chapter number two, The Advocates. So this, uh, this kind of section is all about the advocates, and these are the expert organizations you know, we rely on in order to build a project or get the, get the quality information and the relationships for a project. Um, Nicole Brownstein was, has really been kind of like one of the spearheaders, and the amazing, the amazing people um, at the uh, New Jersey, at the Pride Center of New Jersey. Um, and then um, shortly after, a, a, I would say about a year after meeting Nicole and being engaged with that support group, Nicole then moved on to start developing support groups with other organizations. Um, and then the, the, the first big um, kind of new support group that she formed was with the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Healthcare System. Um, and that support group um, was aligned actually with not those who identify as transgender, but actually their families and the allies, family and friends of individuals who identify. And it created a space um, where they could come in and ask all of the questions that they had about what that experience was without having to um, burden their loved one 
being kind of like their educator because the transgender individual has their own journey that they got to go on. And one of the things that um, families and friends is they have to go kind of on their own, their own kind of transition, um, whether it be through learning new vocabulary or, or learning about all of the different aspects of what that, what that journey is. What is the advocacy work when we, when we talk about advocacy and we're supporting this, uh, this community, what, what are the opportunities or elements of change that we're talking about? Big areas um, for that they're advocating for come into these categories. So it's lack of legal protections, anti-transgender violence, poverty, harassment and stigma, identity documents, right? So the, the, the right to have your um, legal documents represent uh, who you identify as. And then the other thing is fighting a pervasive and mortally dangerous bias in the healthcare system. And I think that's why it comes up time and time and time again. What I should say is the evolution of the healthcare system kind of meeting the needs of the transgender community in central New Jersey is actually fairly recent. So previously, Dan, if like someone identified as as transgender or gender non-binary, maybe they could get a therapist to work with them. But then if they needed any sort of medical, other medical care, they'd have to travel out of state. So Dan, imagine that you have a cold. What do you do when you have a cold? I mean, what, what do I do or what do I, hypothetically, if I was someone who took better care of my body, I, I would go to my ear, nose, and throat doctor. You would go to the doctor. That's a great example, right? You go to ear, nose, and throat doctor. Now, what happens if you have a really bad cold or let's say you have a, a sinus infection and you're transgender? You're going to hesitate going to that ear, nose, and throat doctor because even though going to that doctor has absolutely nothing to do with your gender identification, you're going to be really anxious about the kind of harassment you might face in that doctor's office. So what would happen is you will hesitate to go to the doctor to take care of yourself for all of those reasons, right? What would happen previously is maybe you were lucky enough and had the resources to take yourself either to Philadelphia or to New York City to one of the big hospital systems that um, have been fairly progressive over the last couple of decades um, to provide um, specific services to the transgender community. This also gets us into another thing that's really important. A lot of the mistakes that have been made in the past. Um, One of our oral history subjects um, for the project um, was Margie Nichols. Now, Margie Nichols is someone who uh, is known to a lot in the in the healthcare field. She's kind of a pioneer in um, what would be called LGBTQ positive therapy. Um, Margie Nichols is uh, the founder of Institute for Personal Growth uh, here in New Jersey. Margie has this, uh, she kind of articulates it, and she tells the story of some bad research that set the community back. Yeah, okay. So when I went to, when I went to sex therapy program at Rutgers, um, they just shut down. So there was a period in the 70s where most major universities had gender clinics. And then everything shut down after 1979. It was a guy, it was a psychologist or a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins had done a study. He concluded, based on this study, that it did not, that sex reassignment surgery, that's what it was called at the time, uh, sex reassignment surgery did not help 
Um, and he even intimated that it might increase the suicide rate. And so that's all it took for all the clinics to shut down. It was terrible. So, uh, John, um, I, I mean, the institutions that were hosting these clinics, uh, both at the university and at the um, the private healthcare level, they had the resources and the care facilities already in place. And certainly the capacity for peer review, why wasn't this study ever challenged? Uh, what a great question. And it's a great question because it brings us to the, the other big problem. Science will, truthfully in a lot of ways, only go so far in educating the public if the public is willing to listen to the lesson. And the big issue was at that time, and even now still today, we're fighting a cultural stigma. So the problem is bad science told a good story. And the good story was, this is a population that you're justified being afraid of, or you're justified um, um, discriminating against. And that was a story that was, that was more soothing to the culture than really listening to what the truth was or listening to where the science should 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 have gone if it had been if it had been pursued further at that time margie gives a, a another little aspect to this and she talks about that how that stigma plays out in the medical profession spe specifically the ethos about working with quote transsexuals unquote was if you were transsexual um, Renee Richards writes about this a lot. You were supposed to go stealth, you know. In fact, you were encouraged to move to another area, cut all of your ties for people who had known you in your birth gender, um, and, and go stealth. But the idea was you were supposed to, and this is part of the criteria was, do you, part of the criteria for accepting people was, is this person going to pass and be able to go stealth? So basically, Dan, you could not get access to good quality health care or, or transition services, transition either hormone therapies or surgeries, if the doctor didn't believe you would culturally fit in. You had to fit that doctor's own personal biased opinion of what gender was in order for you to get medical attention. So that was a big problem for a long time. Uh, John, you've done some really great work here just in terms of highlighting uh, the key challenges and concerns that face this community. Uh, what are the opportunities that are have presented themselves? What What is the current state of healthcare for the community, particularly here in central Jersey? That's a great question. Um, here, I want to relate it to something else that's happened, kind of like in our own cultural evolution of healthcare. Um, when we think of things like the children's hospital, right? We eventually came to an understanding that children are going to have very specific kind of uh, care needs. How do you make accommodations for that for that young person? Another aspect could be, you know, talking about gender, women's hospitals became a thing of the last century. Biological needs and also cultural needs um, being a, a, a identifying as a woman in the healthcare system. The same is 
true for a lot of different kinds of communities. Um, and the same is true for a lot of different communities, even if there's just, if there's a cultural um, difference. Hospital systems are now saying, okay, we have this very specific community that has a long history of discrimination. So what we need to do is we need to provide some accommodation so that we're providing the same kind of quality health care for that community as we do for all of our other communities. Nicole Brownstein has has a way of kind of getting us into what hospitals need to be doing and how they're going to orient themselves to meet the needs of the transgender community. There are doctors and practitioners who believe their religious freedoms not to provide health care to the transgender community outweigh the oath they took when they became doctors. Certain right-wing groups preach hatred towards the transgender community and campaign for non-acceptance of a transgender individual's rights or needs for proper health care. I think it's a good segue into uh, chapter three, the community stories. So when Nicole invited us into that support group space, um, one of the things that we, we all agreed upon was that we should be quiet for a while and just listen. And after that period of time, Nicole actually pushed us. She was like, okay, you've been listening for a while. And I remember one meeting specifically where she kind of put me on, uh, on the spot in the middle of the support group. She's like, you've been listening and we've been sharing. Where do you see yourself fitting into all of this? And I proposed um, working with uh, um, allies within the Rutgers Oral History Archive, uh, specifically Molly Graham, who is then the uh, associate director, and taking oral histories of the community. And it, it, it was kind of a fortuitous, you know, combining of threads. And what I said was, let's take the oral histories of those who are willing to do it within the support group and let's create a play that helps you all set the record straight, that helps you all share with larger communities that aren't in this room right now and that maybe could benefit from hearing some of these stories and getting some of this information. So that's what we started doing. There's something really interesting there in what you said in terms of how do you respond to a question like that from Nicole? How do you see yourself in this? It's not only the um, the storytelling side of it. What I find really compelling about our oral history work is that we are asking of ourselves and we're asking of our audiences and of our partners to reframe the question, um, what does it mean to be human um, to instead ask someone to reframe their own experience through the given lens. Like, what does it mean for you to be transgender? The the other thing about that is it's so interesting that you bring that up because I had that discovery in through the True Selves Project specifically during the Call Me Kate moment, right? So Call Me Kate was when Caitlyn Jenner ostensibly came out of the closet as um, uh, a trans-identifying individual who is making the transition from male to female. So everyone came to that support group meeting with their copy of Call Me Kate on the cover of Vanity Fair. And everyone had something to say about that article. 
And one of the things that I really realized was there were some people who were really in supportive of it and thought it was a good representation. There were others that had uh, some critiques about it. And, and everyone felt like it was one version of the story, but there were so many other versions of the story. And one of the concerns that came out of that conversation was everyone in the world thinking that this is the only way to be transgender. We, we kind of realized together that there was so much potential in our oral history and um, interview-based theater project to reemphasize that point for the New Jersey community, that there isn't just one kind of story, that there's a very diverse group of people that fit within this overarching term of transgender. And then it's worthwhile for us to be curious about all of those different kinds of experiences. Um, the moment did a couple of things. It did like three big things for us in that moment. It sparked a desire definitely for the group to be more active in the advocacy space. They all wanted to be now public uh, representatives of a positive reflection of trans identity. They also were galvanized. It, it Like the Call Me Kate movement also galvanized their courage to share their stories Um and it also showcased that being transgender doesn't depend on socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or race. Being transgender um, can fit into any sort of class status or, or, or racial background. It's not specific to any one group. It, it, it impacts groups, people from all different backgrounds. So Dan, one of the things you mentioned was that that relationship, and we mentioned earlier that relationship between socioeconomic status and just having the resources uh, in order to access good quality healthcare. Um, here's one of our oral history subjects, Mariah, specifically talking about that kind of access. I got to the high school, and the high school was such a broad awakening to the LGBT because there was a lot of everything there. And a lot of people were telling me this, that, and third. Do you want to get surgery to be a girl? And I was like, surgery to be a girl? Back in my head, I'm like, I would like to do that. But I'm not going to say that to nobody. I'm not fully, like, what's the word? Medically transitioned. But I would like to be. But it's just the way money flow is set up right now. I ain't got money for all that. Because transitioning costs money. A lot of people was like, when are you getting surgery? I was like, if you got $24,000 right now, I'll get it tomorrow. I mean, what, is it, what, what does it take to be able to afford what our system refers to as elective surgeries in this country? It's, it's prohibitive. There, there is a barrier there. There's still then the experience of then going through the transition. Uh, and I think it is important for us to hear that full story uh, and understand. Uh, and, and I believe we have um, a really strong experience to relate about someone who who did have the opportunity to go through um, go uh, go through surgery. Exactly. So here's a story from JP um, talking about uh, their experience in what is a a first class hospital system. You know, doctors are so uneducated, you know. Um, there's actually um, an incident after my second surgery to fix the bleed. I remember waking up in the, um, like, the surgery recovery room, 
And this was like late at night, so it was like empty because the hematoma happened like that. I needed surgery like that. Um, so, um, like, I woke up, I was looking around, I was like wondering where the nurses were. I was in this huge empty room, and I see across me is this long table, and the nurses were like talking and giggling. I, I didn't understand what they were saying. Then I woke up to like two nurses in front of me, and, um, you know, then one of the nurses looked at me and she's like, so why did you have surgery? I'm like, so I just said gender confirmation for my surgery. And she's like, oh, okay, but why did you get I'm like, because I, I needed it. And she's like, well, do you want bottom surgery? Mind you, I'm literally coming out of like anesthesia, right? So I'm like not with it completely. I'm just kind of like, wait, what did she say to me? Am, am I like hallucinating or something? Like what's going on? What? And I think I looked at him like, wait, what? And she's like, you know, do you want bomb surgery? Do you want dick? I'm just like, oh my God. But like, like, she like asked me again or like asked me like a little different. And she's like, well, you know, like, don't you like want a dick or something like that? And I'm just like, it, it literally finally clicked in my head. Like, I'm like, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And um, I looked at her, I'm just like, why are you asking me this? Like, what does this have to do with what's happening to me right now? So listening to that clip from JP, we get an understanding that, you know, one of the things um, that hospitals and med- healthcare systems are coming to terms with is that there's still some work that needs to be done. Uh, a lot of that has to do with training of their staff and and just developing an understanding of what that experience is, developing some some empathy um, for that experience. Um, Nicole herself, in her oral history, um, uh, talks about her own transition story. And Nicole is someone who uh, um, made the decision to come out of the closet and be true about herself. Um, after her retirement, um, and she was in her 60s already when she, uh, when she decided to transition. And Nicole has this beautiful moment in her, in her oral history in which she says, I had uh, a decision to make and I only had two options. Option number one was come out of the closet and transition, and option number two was kill myself. And that idea comes up again and again and again and again in our oral history work. Um, And the realization is, is that this isn't just an elective surgery. Uh, Governor Phil Murphy had uh, addressed a whole battery of executive orders to effectively shut down the state uh, in light of the pandemic. Uh, And one of them, uh, Executive Order 109, specifically addresses elective surgeries and trying to limit uh, what is happening in our hospitals to drive all of our resources towards uh, uh, dealing with the crisis. Um, And it effectively eliminated all elective surgery uh, to be performed in the, in the state until the executive order is lifted. And and John, I, I wanted to turn to you to just sort of understand a little bit further what this means as an impact for the transgender community. That's a really great question and a really good point. Um, and uh, I, I actually asked Nicole Brownstein that that same question, um, and she uh, she gives a little bit more background and a little bit of perspective on how uh, the current pandemic is is directly affecting the trans community. All 
transgender-related surgeries are classified as elective surgeries. While therapy may still be available remotely to some, most other services have been postponed or outright canceled. This pandemic has proven to be one of the most serious challenges to quality health care that the transgender community has ever experienced. This is a situation um, in which these therapies are actually life-saving um, for, for individuals who, who identify this way. Um, and it is, it's understood by the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, that these therapies, including surgeries, can actually help save someone's life. Um, so here's another way, you know, where this current pandemic, COVID-19, is having a direct negative impact to an already at-risk community. So the semantic limitations of elective surgery do, I think, as you said, create these uh, create these concerns that probably should be explored further outside outside of this crisis just to make sure that when we do fall into a situation where we essentially have to triage that individuals who um, are otherwise being underserved don't get left behind. That's a great point. And I feel like, I feel like it's also a good segue into the final part of this conversation. And that's chapter four, the art. What you said about further exploration and further investigation has to do a lot with, all right, now we got to get people talking about it and we got to get people curious about what this experience is. Um, our creative process for this was, was kind of interesting because I think we had so much content and so much information and so many stories. We, we, I will admit we were a little like, okay, now what's the story? What's the play? You know, at the end of the day, um, as a as a theater artist doing this kind of research project, you could have hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio and content, and you got to try to boil that down to an hour, like a 60-minute play. Um, and what are the stories that you focus on? And one of the things we realized is we didn't want to be the only ones making those decisions. We wanted to make them kind of in communion or in partnership with the actual people who told us the stories. So we did a workshop process that included original members of, uh, of those support groups who were participants. We included uh, individuals who were oral history narrators. We also had um, uh, playwrights and writers and actors and, and dancers and choreographers come into a workshop space together and just start playing around with, uh, with some of the creative ideas. One of the big things that really came up was we, we talked a lot about understanding the history of things. We figured was those stories were going to be really important, and they, they play a really prominent role in what became True Selves, the play. So one of the things that is most exciting to me about this work is the intended audience, and that you are really trying to develop and design a storytelling form to... And, encourage culture change and that it's meant to be performed and presented to healthcare providers and doctors and nurses to really change the way 
um, this community is perceived of when they go in for healthcare. We really knew that the play had to take the point of view that we we must recognize that some of this can be intimidating for the general public, right? Newness is always scary. And one of the ways we can help the trans community is by helping others come to an understanding of what the experience is, what it's like, you know, um, help them walk in their shoes for a period of time. Um, and the play really provides those who, who maybe have some questions and don't know how to ask them. It provides them that space to get the answers to those questions. Um, it provides a safe space to ask questions and learn about gender expansiveness. Um, and we realized the play not only could be that space, but had to be that space. Collab Arts does have additional resources. If anyone uh, is interested in digging a little deeper from what came up in tonight's episode, uh, you can go to our website at www.collab-arts.org slash true selves uh, to find some additional resources and educate yourself uh, a little bit more on our available material and read excerpts from the play. Yeah, and um, you can take a, a quiz yourself and see how knowledgeable uh, you feel on, on all of these different terms. Cool. John, I think that's our second full episode. <sighs> Wipes sweat from brow. <laughs> well, so I'm getting, instead of adding any more audio, we should, we should go ahead and uh, thank all of the people we need to thank. Uh, we'd like to thank our newest patrons uh, for contributing to the Collab Arts Patreon. Your monthly membership goes directly to Collab Arts collaborating artists and allows us to create and commission new virtual programming, reflecting our local creative community and gives you access to group and one-on-one -on -one virtual creative workshops. And please check out our upcoming schedule of programs, which includes Jad Cato uh, hosting a live story creation uh, on uh, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on Facebook. Uh, Dusty Ballard hosts uh, a guest storyteller every Friday night at 7 on our Instagram. Check out other workshop videos on the Collab Arts website. We uh, we also need to give a special thanks to all of the amazing individuals who made this podcast episode possible. And first and foremost, thanks go to Nicole Brownstein, who is an activist and support group facilitator at Robert Wood Johnson Somerset. Uh, we also want to thank Margie Nichols, who's a therapist and founder of the Institute for Personal Growth. Uh, narrators JP and Mariah our research interns uh, Rafael Lozada, Alyssa Fox and Amanda Bruce Chrissy Briskin, co-curator for True Selves and lead transcriber Patty Nagel of the Pride Center of New Jersey Lara Arp uh, from Who Is My Neighbor Inc. in Highland Park David Rogoff, Pride Center of New Jersey and we want to thank our funders. Um, grant funding for this project has been provided by the Middlesex County Board of Chosen Freeholders through a grant award from Middlesex County Cultural and Arts Trust Fund. And uh, as always, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, who supports local journalism, government transparency initiatives, and creative community outreach efforts to educate and engage the public around issues of importance to New Jersey. Uh, Collab Arts is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Collab Arts. Do I, do I get to say it this time, Dan? Do I get to say it it's this time? It's your turn. Yay. Dave Seaman, play us out. Bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back.
bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. Bring it back, 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 bring it back. The archive. The Cool.